Audio Cam with Cam Scotland. Bridge differences with mediation. Hello and welcome to Video Cam and Audio Cam for Cam Scotland. My name is Scott Doherty and I'm here today with Lisa Parkinson. Uh, Lisa's been a practicing mediator since 1978, uh, and although it would take the length of this entire interview to list her achievements in pioneering mediation in the UK, in the interest of brevity, I'll mention only that she co-founded the UK's first mediation service. Uh, she co-founded the Family Mediators Association uh, with founder members of the body which became Resolution. Uh, she coordinated the, the first training courses for the FMA and CAM Scotland, having developed the role of solicitors in mediation, uh, was a founder member of the European Forum for Family Mediation Training and of the, the World Mediation Forum. And as if all that wasn't enough, literally wrote the book on family mediation. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much. <laughs> welcome. Thank you, Scott. Good. So, in an earlier interview, I spoke with Anne Dick, um, who was with you on the, the journey of mediation in Scotland. And I wonder if you could take me through, first of all, how you were involved in the development of mediation and CAM Scotland up here. Yeah, I think um, it was actually Julianne McQueen, who was then the director of the uh, Scottish um, um, Council for One Parent Families in Edinburgh. And Julianne um, had a friend in Bristol who was um, a um, social worker, a psychiatric social worker whom I knew. And so Julianne heard about our sort of pilot service in Bristol, which was the first in the UK, I'm, I'm fairly sure. And that led to Julianne in, um, deciding to organize a conference in Scotland, the first conference on family mediation in Scotland, which was in May 1981. And Julianne invited me to come up to Edinburgh and talk about our scheme in Bristol and how it was going, how it worked. And that led to a committee being set up in Edinburgh, um, which set up the first family mediation service in Edinburgh, which was the Lothian service, um, which, like our service in Bristol, was providing mediation in relation to children matters. Sure. Not all issues, but children. And then um, that's spread across Scotland and there was a Scottish Association of Family Conciliation Services, as it was then called, SAFCOS, which I think was set up in 1986. And by that time, um, I was involved in developing mediation on all issues involving lawyers as mediators, which we started in um, London in the mid-80s, having got the um, green light from the Law Society of England and Wales. And I was co-mediating with um, very experienced family lawyers um, as a pilot project, which led then to another national association, the Family Mediators Association. Yes. Um, and then I think the next development was that um, the Law Society of Scotland, who obviously had followed what was happening south of the border, uh, invited the Family Law Association in Scotland to run the first training for family lawyers in Scotland in family mediation and Anne Dick was the founder chair I think of the Family Law Association and uh, she approached, I think she'd already come down actually and taken part in one of our training courses um, and there was an approach from the Family Law Association to the Family Mediation Association of which I was that time um, director um, asking whether we would cooperate with a, a course up in Scotland 
and the FMA, Family Mediators Association, agreed to um, providing um, our training program and training materials and documents um, for a course in pioneer course in Scotland, and Anne adapted the standard documents for the Scottish legal context. We said tartan versions of the standard documents. And we adapted the role play so that it would be Scottish families, not English families. And um, we ran the first um, course in 1993. And, and so that's how it got going. And it was the very first training group. Um, I remember we had a meeting in the evening, and I think Kat, um, Anne said in her interview, um, they were invited to come up with an acronym. And one of them came up with this brilliant acronym, CALM, Comprehensive Accredited Lawyer Mediators. Yeah. Do you remember who it was, just out of interest, that came up with that? Um, um, I would have to look it up. She's not a member of CALM now. I don't think she's a practicing lawyer because I asked Anne about her. Um, Anne might be able to remember her name. I'm sorry, but I, I'm afraid I can't. Sure. Just uh, interested in the history of it all. Yes. She, um, I think she changed direction after that brainwave and <laughs> is not a practicing lawyer, as far as I know. That was it for her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So or not, not practicing family law, she's not a member of CALM anyway. Sure, sure. So what you've described there, it sounds like a very straightforward process and there were no challenges at all. <laughs> was that the case? Yeah, I think it was a sheer pleasure actually, <laughs> uh, as far as I was concerned. Um, we always had extremely nice groups of um, lawyers coming on the CALM courses. Um, we ran the first courses at um, Creef Hydro, um, which was a lovely venue, obviously. Um, and uh, we had, yes, extremely keen, interested, cooperative groups of lawyers. And I would say there were very few challenges. I think the only, a very rare challenge um, was because we do, well, I say we, CALM does have a process of ongoing assessment with um, training mediators to make sure that they're comfortable with the way the training's going and that they are sh actually acquiring the necessary skills and so on. And so it's very rare, but if there is um, a trainee mediator who does seem to be having difficulty in um, making what is a considerable transition, I think, from the role of advising lawyer to the role of mediator, it is a, quite a transition to make. And there are occasionally some lawyers who have difficulty making that transition. Sometimes they just um, opt out and say they, but they usually say they enjoy the training and find it useful, but they don't want to uh, become a mediator. It's not very common. Um, and it's very rare that there's a, a lawyer who thinks they are, uh, you know, the bee's knees, but actually haven't quite got it. <laughs> well, well, thinking of that transition then, one of the main concerns that lawyers have faced in becoming lawyer mediators it's almost a, an embarrassment that we lack the, the insight of social workers, psychologists and counsellors, and that having a, an adversarial breeding, if I put it that way, um, we're, we're somehow becoming involved in something that we don't belong in, uh, in such an important service um, in the lives of separating couples. So given your, your role in particular in bringing lawyers into this fold, what's your view on that? I think um, from having had the pleasure actually of training a great many lawyers and working with many lawyers, there are a large number who have a natural aptitude, who just are natural mediators, who have a negotiating approach, who are very committed to 
um, the interests of children, not only of their own client, and to have the kind of manner and personal qualities that mediators need. And I think there are a lot like that. Um, there are others who perhaps find it just a bit more difficult to switch from being rather more in control and giving information and seeing solutions and being a bit more directive. And those kind of lawyers can have a bit more difficulty um, in being non-directive and facilitative and yet not just you know going around in circles. So I think personal qualities um, of empathy, empathy is extremely important and obviously um, many family lawyers just like mediators from other disciplines um, have a great deal of empathy which they can express. Um, I think it's one of the most important qualities because people need to feel you're really interested in them. Um, and you need to be patient, but also able to be firm in helping to keep discussions on track and intervening when necessary. Yeah. Um, I think you do need a sense of humor, um, which needs to be used obviously with care, but used carefully and sensitively, um, people respond extremely quickly and it can just lighten the atmosphere um, and also very much, I think, the ability to, f to focus on children and help parents to really think as parents rather than as, you know, warring couples. Yeah, yeah. Well, well thinking then of the, the nature and nurture uh, approach then, um, you know, where we've been fed as lawyers and education directed to litigating issues in separation, how confident are you for those that are struggling uh, a little that a year in training in mediation can instill in lawyers the skills that they need to help couples the most in separation? Well, there are different um, stages, perhaps. And I think in England and Wales, we've um, gone a bit further in having a single national body with delegated responsibility for setting standards for training and practice and a process of accreditation, um, which involves now a really demanding portfolio in which the mediator who's seeking accreditation, who has already had not only foundation training, but continuing training and um, professional practice consultancy, which is termed rather than supervision, um, there's a considerable amount of, of continuing training that goes on and practical training before preparation of, of this portfolio. And the portfolio has to demonstrate um, evidence of skills in practice, which is obviously really important. And I think no system of assessment is, is perfect, but I think preparing a portfolio where you have to document anonymously um, three mediations that you've done in some detail, um, not just giving a um, a detailed account, but actually saying what were the challenges, what techniques or skills you used, and what with hindsight you might have done differently, or what you've learned from that. It's, it really is a further training in itself, preparing that portfolio. And would we, I say we, the Family Mediation Council in England and Wales, is developing that still further 
And I know from experience as a professional practice consultant that it is very demanding and challenging and takes a lot of time to do this portfolio. But now, increasingly, here is going to be a requirement. You know, you're uh, accredited um, and then you're recognized um, for signing court forms, etc., that we have down here. Um, and, and I think this is the way direction that um, family mediation needs to go and has gone indeed in other European countries. France also uses a portfolio system. Uh, Ireland is developing, I think, the same way. And it is necessary, I think, to be able to demonstrate how you use mediation skills in practice. Just attending a course and having a recommendation, I think, is not really enough. Yeah, yeah. Do you see that changing in Scotland, do you think? Um, I, I hope so. I mean, it does take a lot of effort and a lot of time. Um, and uh, maybe um, car members won't thank me for saying that I think it needs to go further. But um, I think actually it does, having looked at experience in other countries as well and, and research findings which show that even when you have been through a lot of training and have a lot of experience, you can still not um, follow all the principles and skills in quite the way that we think we might be doing. Um, there are still weaknesses that we need to be aware of and address. And in order to provide the highest possible quality of service in what is actually a very demanding field of work, I think we really need to go on working at defining what the key skills are and demonstrating how you actually use them. Not just you know about them, but how you use them when you're perhaps, you know, in quite a stressful session with two very angry and upset people, um, that you still manage to use those skills in a way that seems to them you know, balanced and empathetic and that they can respond to. Yeah, yeah so, so thinking about um, the, uh, the, the, the training, uh, again, that we might uh, go through and... Uh, you know, for the benefit of people who are separating and thinking of approaching a lawyer to mediate their issues. You mentioned some of the skills there, empathy, for example, um, and sense of humour as well. What other skills? Well, I think they're, they're qualities, sorry, I think they're qualities rather than skills. Yeah. I'd make a distinction between sort of personal qualities, human qualities, sure. and um, actual skills, like the way you use the way you show empathy and the way uh, you use humour, because obviously they could be used quite insensitively or quite inappropriately. Yeah, yeah. So, so do you want to expand a little on the types of skills that we do learn as mediator or lawyer mediators? Yeah, well, I'd just like to, in a way, question the use of the term lawyer mediator, because I think you learn to be a mediator, yes. a family mediator. And I think family mediators may come from a range of, of relevant disciplines, um, which the law is one, but not the only one. Um, and I think it's a question of how you integrate um, previous professional knowledge and experience and add to it, expand it. So I don't like these labels, which suggest that you're either a lawyer mediator or a non-lawyer mediator, because it suggests if you're a non-lawyer mediator, you're somehow inferior. And of course, I, I <laughs> react to that because I don't accept that. So I think... Um, to be an effective mediator, you need this blend of knowledge, skills, personal qualities, um, and you need to be able to just bring them, bring them together. Yeah. And that's as a mediator. That's right, that's right. Well, as a mediator... As a mediator, I think one of the um, 
key skills is if there are children involved, which there very often are, then I think it is about helping parents to, um, I think it's very difficult. I think it's first of all to acknowledge with them how difficult it is to be ending one part of a very major relationship if they've been living together, that is, married or unmarried, um, and yet to continue cooperating as parents, to do both at the same time, to disengage as a couple and continue to cooperate as parents, it's extremely difficult because the feelings clearly often get mixed up. And I think one of the first things is to really recognize that with parents. And I find they appreciate that recognition and they often say that they haven't thought about it like that before. And it is difficult. And I think part of the mediator skill is helping them to recognize how these feelings can get entangled and to prioritize um, and to think about what, what is the most urgent, what needs to be sorted out first, um, and where children are concerned, to focus on each child as an individual, not just the children, like a package, but each child who may be reacting differently according to age and personality. And uh, I think there are various ways, um, obviously, to do that. And it's, it's very important and very rewarding. And one of the criticisms, I think, that research has, has shown um, is that mediators can get drawn into um, negotiating over financial settlement, which, of course, may be pressing as well. And children can get a bit pushed to one side in gathering details of uh, finances. Sure. And then, especially if time is pressing and time obviously costs money, it is rather easy to um, focus um, rather too much perhaps on details of financial settlement and children don't get enough attention. And that comes through in some follow-up research. And I think that's something in training that we need to perhaps emphasize even more strongly um, how to balance the different issues and make sure that children don't get pushed to one side because it's their lives forever um, and how to help parents think about them rather more deeply and, and carefully. Than otherwise they might um, be asked to do in court for example? Yeah, in court I think you know, the time may be very short and they may be obviously competing with each other more to each prove their point of view and prove that they're right the other one's wrong so the whole stance is different and if um, there's a social work report or report on the child it's very different um, context and the feelings are completely different whereas if you're sitting down in a, a private room with both parents together you know i very often ask them you know if they have um, photos of, of their child on their mobiles which most parents have these days and actually looking looking at photos of the child and asking questions about the child it's amazing how parents then look at each other their tone of voice changes and they become much more child focused and talk as parents and laugh more readily um, than um, obviously would be possible in a court setting that's right that's right uh, I'm just wondering when you were talking there about um, uh, how mediation is, is carried out um, and I'm wondering obviously you've been mediating since as I say 1978 do you see a difference in the way um, mediation is carried out now as it was back then? Yes I think it has or I certainly hope it has developed um, I hope 
um, that are, it's expanded in that we've developed more um, models or ways of mediating. Um, sometimes I think it is necessary to discuss with parents, um, say they both have a new partner and both new partners are really involved in you know, looking after the children, feeding them or whatever. Sometimes both parents say they want their new partners involved because they are centrally involved. It needs to be balanced. Um, um, but I've certainly done some mediations. You may then need a co-mediator, possibly. Um, but, you know, expanding it by bringing in key third parties. Sometimes, you know, grandparents are very involved. I'm thinking of one mediation where grandparents wanted contact with their little granddaughter, age three, um, because their son had a very serious drug problem and wasn't able to have any contact with his little daughter. His parents wanted contact with their granddaughter. And to cut it short, um, we set up a mediation with the grandparents, the mother of the child, her new partner, um, and co-mediators. So six of us. And actually it was very productive. Um, I'm not sure we would have done that in the early days. So I think it's um, thinking more in terms of family systems and children's attachments, who they are attached to or who um, it's recognised they need to be attached to to keep attachments or form um, bonds. Um, and with society becoming more increasingly multicultural, I think we need to think about mediation with um, families and parents from different cultures children who may be actually you know, biracial um, and sometimes some cultures, senior family members or senior members of the church or local community may need to be actually brought in with consent. Um, that's again quite a, a change, but one I think that we need to be open to and to, to work on and, and develop. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could probably go on, but that may be nothing. <laughs> I think what you're suggesting is that it's fair to say that as we've been practicing mediation over the years, um, mediation effectively has developed um, yes. so it's more able to mould itself around the, the needs uh, and wishes of the, the parties themselves. Is that what you're, you're alluding to? Yes, I, th I think it is developing... Um, a form of mediation that you really need to design with the um, key, two key, usually it's two key participants, um, that you need to think through with them what ways forward there are and how to structure the process. Instead of just imposing one basic standard model on them, which doesn't suit everybody, it's more designing um, a model with and for them, which needs to be more flexible and more imaginative, and I think more creative, um, to be aware of the links with the legal process, to help them understand that, that while it's confidential, one still needs to understand the um, connections between the family mediation and the court system, or with the child protection system. So it's what I call a systemic approach that helps families keep more control over their own decisions, their own arrangements, and reduces the need for authorities to step in and take control away from them, um, which means you need to understand what other systems are out there and, and how they function. That's right, that's right. Well, thinking about the systems then, uh, and you mentioned court there as well, um, in your neck of the woods, um, they have introduced information meetings. 
um, yes. which are, are mandatory for parties to go to in certain situations. Do you want to talk a little about them? Well, it's actually a requirement, um, unless there are exceptions, there are exceptions, but otherwise it is a requirement for the applicant to the court. It's a requirement for the applicant, but not for the respondent. The respondent is encouraged, but not required, which we have um, raised questions about because it really would work much better if both of them were required, not together, uh, they should be seen separately. But of course, while the respondent, who may not really understand what it's about, um, isn't required to attend, um, a great many don't. Um, they didn't really understand, probably, um, what information they could get from an information meeting. They just um, may think, oh, I don't need to take any notice of that. So quite a number, um, maybe as many as 50%, um, ignore or don't respond to a letter of invitation to attend. But then, of course, you can't get anywhere if you only have one of them. Yeah. I find that if um, one meets with each of them separately to discuss not only mediation, but if appropriate collaborative law or the court or what steps forward uh, are possible, I find that the, a huge majority say, oh, I'd rather try mediation. Yeah. Because if they understand it and have some reassurance um, and their concerns or possibly fears are addressed so that risks are avoided, because one does have to be careful about risks, clearly, I think if they feel the process is, is suitable for them and worth trying, um, it's actually quite rare for people to say, oh, I understand it, but I don't want it, because they can see otherwise they may remain stuck for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Although I've seen some of the figures um, with the, the legal aid uh, take up uh, down south recently, and there's a suggestion that perhaps, um, as you say, people aren't going to uh, these information meetings, but they still seem to be getting into courts, notwithstanding that. Do you know whether or not the, the system is working? I don't think it's working nearly as well as it um, should and could work. Um, as I don't deal with you know, court forms and so on, I can't see, I don't know what really goes on. But it sounds as though um, quite a large number of applicants are somehow able to fill in the form or sign it themselves um, and somehow get, get to court. Um, I don't know quite whether they, um, whether the exceptions about domestic abuse are exaggerated or quite what uh, it goes on. But it seems that um, really quite a considerable number bypass the information meetings and, and don't take it up. And the court, courts vary. I hear of some who do actually send applicants back and say, look, you need to attend an information meeting about mediation and dispute resolution. But I, it seems that many courts don't. Mm. Therefore, there are still many people going to court who might use mediation, but um, don't possibly even understand it or don't know it exists even. Um, and uh, as I say, it can be difficult to get hold of the, um, the second um, participant. Um, and... A lot of people, including professionals, still don't know that legal aid is available for mediation. I, I talk to people and, and find, they think, oh, legal aid's gone, hasn't it? And if you say, well, I've talked to NHS counsellors, actually there's still legal aid for mediation for those who qualify. Um, it's completely free, completely free, and a small amount of independent legal advice alongside it to formalise, say, a consent order. 
I found that they're actually maids. They don't realise that at all. Um, and if professionals don't know that, certainly the general public doesn't yeah. either. To find out how mediation can help you, follow us at CAM Scotland on Twitter, Facebook and Google+, or visit camscotland.co.uk. I don't know if you're aware, Relationship Scotland recently um, produced a manifesto and one of the, the things that they're wanting to focus on is the possibility of these information meetings being introduced uh, in Scotland. So having seen um, how they work or don't work down south, obviously we have an opportunity here to try and design a system that does work. Would you have in mind, uh, you know, if, if you were to scratch it uh, and start again, how it would work better? Well, I would, I would say make it a requirement for both participants, um, a requirement for both, because I think um, the objection to that was that um, it would be um, um, against the, you know, the rights of, the, of a person who wasn't intending to go to court to require them to attend an information meeting. But I think the, there are two answers to that. One is that there should be an equal right to information, and it is information. It's not forcing them to accept mediation. Mediation is voluntary. So I think there should be an equal right to information if either participant or party is intending to go to court. They both should have um, equivalent information. Um, and secondly, and perhaps it should be for best interest of the child, where there are children involved, and there aren't always children involved, but where there are children involved, there's ample research showing that you know, prolonged conflict litigation uh, is harmful to children, both in the short term and possibly in the longer term. Therefore, parents who are in dispute over children, which is only, a, in England and Wales, 10% uh, only parents actually go to court about their children, but many more, in fact, have um, disputes and conflicts about children. Um, so if there are difficulties, disagreements, or no contact taking place at all, perhaps, um, then I think, I think it is perfectly justifiable to require both parents, not just one, to attend an information meeting, to look at needs of all those involved, including children, and what possibilities there are, what ways forward there are, and whether a process can be um, designed that both um, key participants would be willing to at least try, because there's no commitment to a long-term process. Um, either can actually end it, the mediator can end it, and I find that if it should get um, too heated, or one or both get really upset, I find that just seeing them separately um, for a short time Calms, helps to calm down enormously and very often then they're able to come back together for a short time to focus again on you know key step or key um, um, arrangement say for the coming week and often you can hold something like that whereas if you just let them begin to shout at each other one will storm out and then it's it's gone so I think it's about um, flexibility being able to um, take initiatives and, and people trusting you to do that. And if you can reach them in the first place through a requirement to attend, um, making it clear it's not mandatory mediation, it's um, information, understanding what routes there are to getting things sorted out, um, rather than um, what may be a very long drawn out process and costly process 
of having decisions imposed on you, actually. Um, I think that's really justifiable, and I'd be delighted if Scotland goes that way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the issues, I suppose, um, has been the suggestion that these information meetings come too late, um, and that perhaps earlier intervention might assist. Uh, is that your view as well? If, if there was information, um, no, because I, I well, I find that um, people are referring themselves more now through the internet. And so they're looking up information online. They may be some way off any intention to go to court. Um, they may be still at quite an early stage of separation, but they're you know, looking up online, what services are there, what information is available, and they begin to find out about mediation and they refer themselves. Um, and that may be at quite an early stage when court is only on the horizon and, and they very often say, I don't want to go to court at all. So it's not that they're intending to go to court, they're hoping to avoid court, but they're taking steps to sort things out. So um, I would say that the parents, couples I see um, are mostly early stage and often self-referred and only occasionally um, later referrals, I can think of one or two where there's been something like six years of litigation Wow. And they're very difficult, very difficult to help because by this time children are teenage, sometimes late teenage, and they are just sick and tired of um, all this going on and they vote with their feet. Yeah. And, it's, and then, yes, one has to respect them, which you know, leads us on perhaps to listening to children, older children and teenagers um, because it's their lives too. And uh, if they can be consulted, preferably before parents have got in such a mess, uh, so much the better. Well, I'm glad you brought the discussion round to that. You, you mentioned or alluded to something called child-inclusive mediation. Do you want to describe yeah. a little bit what that is? Um, it's, uh, first of all, um, explaining to parents that um, children, well, in England and Wales, children of 10 and over actually have the right to be consulted if they wish when arrangements are being made um, that concern them, that affect them. And some children really want to be involved and have a say. Um, their preference usually is within the family, privately. And many parents say, um, oh, we do talk to the children, we talk to the children, we've discussed it with them. And there are parents who can sit down together and talk with their children, and that's really fine, obviously. Other parents who can't talk to each other and don't know what the other parent is saying or not saying to the children. And uh, there are a lot of children who write into this um, website that uh, we'll probably move on to talking about, Voices in the Middle. There are a lot of teenagers writing in to that website saying, nobody ever asked me. Um, I never got a chance to say what I wanted. I felt um, left out. Um, and reporting really very negative experiences and saying they wished they could have been involved and could have contributed. And I find when parents agree to, it's usually, I would say, um, a child, usually a child over 10, but of course there may be younger siblings, so it could be a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old, and, yeah. and children vary enormously in how they mature. Um, so I'd rather not give a rigid sort of age, but children who want to have a chance to talk um, and um, are not afraid of doing so, understand they're not going to be asked 
to make choices or have responsibility for decisions, but it's just a conversation about how things are going for them. Um, have they got any suggestions about what they think would work better? And often they have. And sometimes they're suggestions that parents simply haven't thought of because they've been too busy with many other things that parents have to deal with. And children can come up with really good ideas um, or things that really concern them, like, so where's the dog going to live? For the child, where the dog is going to live may be incredibly important, but parents may not have thought to tell them that or maybe haven't discussed it. Sure. So it's looking at things from the child's perspective instead of from an adult perspective. And I would say freeing up communication because usually children um, or young people are seen separately, not with their parents, because obviously they'd be very inhibited sitting with both parents. Um, so usually the arrangement is that um, they will be seen separately in different combinations, maybe siblings together and then separately, uh, any combination that works for that family. And then um, if they have particular messages or um, a suggestion they want conveyed and shared with their parents, that might be done with them together if that's how they want it, or it might be done with the parents afterwards without the young people being present. Again, each step needs to be planned as you go along to make it comfortable for everybody. And I would say that it's um, really helpful and that families say they couldn't talk more easily after that because often it sort of opens up channels of communication that have got blocked. Um, so they understand each other better um, and can ask each other's questions more easily. And, uh, and children feel, well, I do count, I do matter, and I've had a chance to take part. That's right. Uh, although some might uh, argue, not me, but uh, some might argue that given how much the, the kids might have witnessed uh, already in the separation and the lead up to and after it, um, that, that perhaps it might not be in their interest to be involved at all in the process of sorting out the big decisions after separation. Uh, I'm gathering that's not your view. No, it isn't. And I don't think you'd find that um, it would be the view of young people. If you asked for example, the members of the Youth Council on um, Voices in the Middle, they're the ones who should answer that. And I think they would say, and if you read their stories on the website, I think you'd find they're saying, we've seen this going on, where they've seen too much negative behavior going on, they actually want to be heard more than ever in order to say, um, please stop it, please stop it, please be civil to each other, please don't badmouth each other to us because we hate that. They have really important messages that parents need to hear and they can put them very strongly and very constructively because they actually show an awful lot of empathy with what parents are going through, but they can also tell parents what they need, which is um, don't keep on attacking each other, uh, arguing, fighting, it doesn't do any good. Um, so I, would, I think they would say, no, all the more reason to bring us in because we know what's going on, we've seen it. Yeah. Um, other times, um, there's a poem now on the Voices in the Middle website, do read it, yes. where a 16-year-old is saying, actually it was difficult because her parents never gave any sign that there were problems. So it, came, it was a huge shock. Um, the children hadn't picked up that there were problems in the marriage, and then they were told their parents were separating. And it was a very big shock. And she's questioning whether silence and holding everything back actually is helpful. 
um, too, that you know, protecting children or thinking you're protecting children, um, and she may not protect them, if then there's some really big shock and they're not prepared for it, they need more preparation and explanation to be able to adjust. Um, so all these insights from young people, I think adults need to listen to more carefully. Um, and I hope we can and, and will. Yeah, so, so thinking about then the process that would uh, allow children to have a voice in, in mediation, and again, coming back to the, the training side of it, um, can you explain how confident parents can be um, in allowing their kids to be spoken with in terms of the, the training that a mediator might have? Well, I, I think it helps to start with looking at um, um, what both parents and mediators may see as pros and cons. Um, such as one that you put forward. Um, I think it's really useful. There are quite a lot, um, actually. If you start making a list, there's a considerable list of um, possible disadvantages, possible risks, concerns, which parents may voice and mediators may voice, because mediators often are really quite uh, wary of um, involving young people directly. Um, and so you get quite a long list of uh, potential disadvantages. But if you look at how it could be done and how it could be structured, actually, I think one can find ways of minimising those um, disadvantages and risks. And if at the same time you look at potential benefits and what are the benefits and how can they be maximised, mm. uh, I think what comes out of that is often um, reassurance that the things that adults may fear happening actually don't seem to happen in practice if you prepare carefully. Mm. And um, if parents, for example, um, very often actually have a tendency to think that the other parent is um, manipulating the child, blocking contact, it's a fairly common accusation, you know, you're telling the child awful things about it, etc. In mediation, I find that Parents actually very often reassure each other that, that is not happening. It's an understandable fear, but they're not. And sometimes whether they're mutual accusations, I mean, I don't go back over who said what to whom, when, but just say, could there be an undertaking that from now on, anyway, and neither of you will run each other down to the children, but um, you will um, speak of each other with, at least with respect, um, and so on. And I find parents actually will sign up to that because they see the point of it. They see that it upsets children. And in relation to not briefing a child and saying, mind you say this and mind you say that, you know, um, if I'm discussing with parents whether they think it would be helpful for um, a teenager or child to come in, um, I would discuss with them um, that if either or both parents tell them what to say, then there's really not much point in them taking part. And you can see from parents' expressions, their eyes, that they see that too. Um, and of course, with a teenager, <laughs> that may not work anyway. Um, <laughs> it may be counterproductive. So, um, I, and I think if you hopefully develop skills in communicating with um, young people and putting them at ease, um, I, I hope one can begin to pick up feelings that are coming from them. Um, quite often, I would say they volunteer um, my mum or my dad thinks that I'm being told to say this, but I'm not. This is what I think. I think this because... And they make it clear that this is their own feeling. And then you can say to the parents, 
this is really coming very strongly from them. Um, and they're saying very clearly, it's not what they've been told to say by anybody else. It's their own feeling. Um, and this is what they're asking for, and what I'm kind of understanding that they're looking for. I'm wondering then if, if parties are then hearing what their children have said um, after there has been a, a consultation with the children, um, I wonder how that affects the mediator's neutrality with the parties. Let's say, for example, that you know, um, one one party has thought that something has been said to the the children, and the children are saying, "No, that's a lot of rubbish." Um, you know, and the mediator's coming back to say that there has been a suggestion that perhaps in that situation it might be best for a separate mediator to undertake the, the consultation with the children. Uh, what's your view on that? Again, I, th I think um, going back to preparing and planning it with the parents, it's helpful to look at the different options with them. Um, do they think it would work better to have a different mediator coming in um, or a child counsellor or somebody different? Um, again, it's, it's sort of pros and cons. Um, I think it's... It does depend on the parents and the family, but again, I th they seem to think quite often because I always ask them, "Have you told your children that you're taking part in mediation?" I always encourage them to tell them anyway, and well, parents tend to say, "Well, um, we've they know and that." Children know you by your first name. They sort of know you, and, and they know we're both meeting with you. And they find it easier to meet with you because you know both of us. And and I think if you ask um, young people about that too, I'm not saying that this would always be their answer, but they do find it, I think, easier to talk with somebody who does actually know both their parents and who clearly must have enough trust from both the parents to be meeting with them. Um, whereas if it's a total stranger, um, well, it may be harder because they have to explain more to a stranger who doesn't know both the parents. Um, and I think then it may be a little bit harder for them to engage. Whereas if you know both their parents, you can start by saying, well, your parents have talked about a lot about you, which usually gets a smile. And they say you're very keen on such and such. And you're kind of into a conversation quickly. Um, rather than sort of trying to, you know, break the ice. Sure. Um, and what he says, I haven't found problems um, in giving feedback. Um, reassurance that children are speaking for themselves, I mean, I think can be addressed to both parents. So I don't think that um, um, causes difficulties. Um, I think if a child has been um, under pressure, maybe for a long time, um, or is particularly upset and raw and angry and doesn't feel ready to see a parent or doesn't want to see them as often as that parent wants, then that is more sensitive, especially if they're living with the other parent. And if it's a message that will be harder for one parent to hear than the other, then I would actually ask both parents if it would be okay for me to meet with each of them separately, as I've done at the beginning. Mm. Um, because the parent whom the child is living with, well, if it's that way around, of course it could be the other way around, but may know very much already what the child is likely to be saying. And it's harder for the one who perhaps is less close to the child, who hasn't been seeing the child. It's 
more sensitive to that parent. And so I would then structure the feedback differently. And, and then if one parent needs to be, just to back off a little bit, not to keep pressing, because again, teenagers, if they get you know, frequent phone calls, texts, are you coming on Saturday? It can be counterproductive. And I think you can explain more easily to a parent on their own, could you just ease off a bit? They've got exams this summer. They're feeling pressed, um, as I can think of just recently. Um, that can be understood. Whereas if the other parent is sitting there, um, not overtly crowing, but you know, rather told you so, yeah, that's very much more difficult. So I think the whole thing needs to be very sensitive and planned step by step, rather than this is the way we do it, step by step, one, two, three, four, um, because that won't work for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned, just to, to tie things up a little, um, you mentioned before about voices in the middle. Do you want to talk a little about that? Yes, I think it's such an important um, small charity that's um, driven forward by young people themselves. And there aren't many, I think, that young people are creating and managing themselves. And I think it's so impressive. Um, there's a youth council of young people aged from 14 to 22 that's expanding. We've just got the first member from Scotland <laughs> who's um, just graduated from Aberdeen. And she wrote in and said she'd love to be able to help. She's got very valuable um, expertise to offer. She's keen to help. And I hope we'll get more from Scotland um, because it is young people themselves. Uh, it's their experience and their voices. And they have ideas. And uh, they've got a lot of drive and they're creative. Um, and so they've got a meeting set up in England with um, the Minister of State and Ministry of Justice is going to meet with them in the autumn. Um, so they're taking, really taking things forward. And, and what's, sharing. what's the ultimate aim then of Voices in the Middle? Well, I think there are several. I think the first one is to say to any young person going through parental separation and divorce, you are not alone because an awful lot have felt very much alone. Um, not talking to parents because parents are preoccupied, not talking with friends because sometimes it feels too painful or too private, um, and feeling very much alone, very lonely, um, and holding an awful lot in, and perhaps staying in their, in their own bedroom, uh, very lonely and suffering a lot. And so the first message is to say, you know, you're not alone, you know, we've been through this too, and sharing feelings that may be painful but also supportive, and giving each other very sound, I think, sound constructive advice. Don't let it throw you off track. Keep going. You know, believe in yourself. You know, have your own goals. It's not your fault, and so on. And it's really good to see them offering that to each other, and they're writing in increasingly um, to the website with um, their own experience and advice and finding i think from my knowledge support through each other um, they can reach out to other services and uh, i've been helping to compile a directory of um, mediators uh, south of the border who um, not only have training in child inclusive mediation but actually experience of providing it which is important so um, it's possible to look online and find uh, mediators with that additional expertise in uh, your area or, or region um, and so I think it's support, I think it's uh, sharing um, and being able to access more information um, and 
um, in relation to government policy, uh, there was um, a report last year, the uh, Voice of the Child report, on the need for children to have a voice, but not much has actually happened. So it's young people saying, well, so what's happening? How about legal aid for it to make it possible for young people, um, parents who can't afford to pay extra, um, to provide additional legal aid so that young people can take part in mediation. Um, that take needs a government decision to provide that. And it's, as I see it, it's certainly not going to be a huge public expenditure because um, not all children uh, need to be inv directly involved. Um, there are a lot of parents, as I say, who are actually very cooperative, very child-focused already, and uh, who do talk to their children. That's right, that's right. Well, um, although I'm sure we could talk for hours on this, <laughs> it's probably best that we, uh, we, we cut this um, at, at this point. But I'm just wondering, just very briefly, uh, on, uh, given your, your huge role in the development of mediation in the UK, just wondering how you see it in the, the coming years. Where do you think it's going to go from here, that and dispute resolution in family matters? Well, I hope it's going to go forward. I mean, there certainly are obstacles. Um, as we've seen in relation to um, getting take-up, you know, public awareness. Actually, I still find that, that um, people can confuse it with reconciliation. Public awareness is still not, not that um, high. It's definitely higher than it used to be, definitely. But um, there are quite a lot of people who want to say, have you heard of this before? They say no. Um, they need to understand what mediation is and what it, and what it isn't as well. So public awareness, um, actually reaching people and engaging them in mediation, which is not simple. Um, and the idea of sitting down in the same room and talking to somebody you're just splitting up from, um, who really wants to do that? <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. But then the alternatives are tough as well. And it's helping to um, reach people to think through what would be possible for them, um, what would work for them. That's a really major task. Um, and, uh, and then I think, yes, um, training not just short courses, which may not be really adequate, but um, how that links with continuing training, practi practical training, uh, if possible, co-mediating with a more experienced mediator. I would say ideally from a, a, another discipline because you learn so much by co-mediating with another mediator from another background, as we always did in, in FMA. Um, and I think, although again, it's very time consuming and uphill, um, developing national standards and systems for accreditation, um, which is, again, a really tough uh, task, but I think it needs to be grappled with because if we're going to say mediation is a professional discipline, it's not just an add-on, you do a few days and you add it on, I think it's more than that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that requires considerable work internationally as well, because I am involved in um, an international group as well, because increasingly with mobility, you know, parents moving uh, countries and more international disputes involving children, um, we need to be able to uh, network um, actually across the world, um, which means that we need to have common definitions and principles and um, can't have completely identical standards uh, for each country, but at least uh, some basis for cooperative working. And that involves um, working different languages, which uh, is another challenge, but really um, fascinating. Um, and um, developing this um, collaboration, really, 
you know, with parents and with families and with professionals so that lawyers don't feel we're taking work away from them, um, which was the strong fear in the early days. And I used to tell them, actually, we're sending more people to you for legal advice than you're sending to us for mediation. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think it's collaboration at every level. Um, and uh, there's plenty still to, still to do. And new ideas and new developments all the time, which makes it always exciting. That's right, that's right. Well, it's been an absolute privilege, Lisa, to, to talk to you today. So thanks very Thank much you. for your time. You too. Um, Thank you very much, Scott. And you've been watching uh, audio cam or video cam and listening to audio cam for Cam Scotland. You've been listening to audio cam with Cam Scotland. For more interviews and links to our mediators, subscribe on iTunes and thanks for listening.